Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob again. I've got Millennials Who Manage, How to Overcome Workplace Perceptions and Become a Great Leader. I've got Chip Espinoza on the line, and uh, he co-wrote this with Joe. So let's talk a little bit about Joe first, and then we'll dive into the book. Uh, it's great to be on your show, Bob. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Uh, Joel is uh, my co-author. He worked a lot with me on Managing the Millennials, my first book. And actually, he, he could have been an author. He did so much work on it. And I really respected his insight and then his research ability. So when it came time to write Millennials Who Manage, I wanted to reach out to him to see if he would uh, partner with me on it. And I'm so glad I did because he brought in some just some great ideas. Uh, for instance, one of the things that he really influenced, inspired in the book, we took uh, the Google survey for management and we used that and we surveyed people over 35 and under 35 and employees of people over 35, employees of people under 35, just to measure where all the generations fell on that uh, metric. And it was quite fascinating what we discovered. Let's define millennials. I know everybody knows it, but there is, you know, there's Generation Z, there's the millennials. So based on your book, which segment did you decide to go on? Because there are slight variations in the definition. Normally what you'll see, everybody's kind of moving towards the Bureau of Labor Statistics, kind of the way they break it up. So anybody born between 1980 and 2000. And of course, Bob, you'll see on both sides, like you said, you'll see different dates. But when you look at generational analysis, it's not an exact science. And so they're sentient boundaries. So if somebody's born in 1990 you know, or 2001 and they want to be a millennial, they can be a millennial. <laughs> yeah, I'm a millennium. I'm 52, <laughs> but I'm a millennium. So what's the difference, do you think, between uh, Generation Z and a millennial? Well, Z probably is around uh, 14 years old yeah. uh, right now, so younger. And because I investigate and research in the workplace, I haven't looked a lot at their behaviors yet. Other than to say, I think the Great Recession of 2008 is going to have an impact on them uh, with the way they handle money. They may be a little more conservative and perhaps even a little more pessimistic uh, than what the millennials were. I think there's some things that are going to stay the same. Uh, the idea that uh, they want autonomy, the idea that they want to blend work and life, those kinds of things I think will be consistent. Uh, even if you look at the millennial population, the way I break them up, is if they went to work before 2009, I call them first wave millennials, after 2009, second wave millennials. And you'll see a little behavioral difference between the second wave and the first wave. For instance, the first wave in the workplace, everybody was talking about a lack of loyalty and they'll, they'll quit within two months. Well, um, I don't think that the value system that caused that has changed in millennials. But in the second wave, just because of uh, the lack of opportunity and jobs out there, they've been more prone to stay longer. Yeah, you know, it, it's a very interesting uh, 
you know, stage in life uh, where you're you're entering the workforce for the first time, and you know, you get a job, and you realize like, oh well, I don't like doing this. This is hard. And then they they quit, and they'll start another job, and realize, well, hang on, this is just as hard. What's going on? Where are all these amazing jobs I've been fantasizing about? And I think that's one of the hardest lessons in life <laughs> is there there are no easy jobs. You know what, Bobby? I mean, you, you hit it on the head. What they have is they've got these expectations about what their career is going to be like, what work's going to be like, and then they get there, and uh, all of a sudden they're let down. And matter of fact, a lot of them talk about experiencing kind of a mild depression to say, "Is this what this is?" Because um, many times, you know, every authority figure in their life prior to work, they perceive to be for them. I'm here to help you get ahead. I'm here for you know to help you move forward. And then all of a sudden they get to work, and it may be the first time they meet an authority figure that they don't perceive to be for them. As a matter of fact, almost antagonistic to them. So, yeah, they do experience kind of a sadness in making that shift to career. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, you know your, your, your first book, because I, I think they play very well together. Um, why did you feel that you needed to do one about millennials who manage? Has it just evolved and it's it, we just have more millennials managing now? Or is is it kind of those two books are lockstep uh, together now? Well, a, a couple of reasons, Bob. You know, number, the, the first reason really is the millennials inspired me to study them from when I was teaching in the classroom and they're the ones who really said, look, you need to look at this, uh, you know, as, as a problem in the workplace and write about it. So it really was a class that I taught that said, Chip, you need to go out and study this. And so I really am indebted to the millennials themselves for really my career today. And so when it came time to writing the next book in the series, I thought, I want to write something that will help them get to the next level of their career. So those, those millennials that have been in workplace for a while that are now making that move into management, how can I best help them and give back to them? So that was my number one motivator. And obviously timing is everything. And for me, whenever I go out and do keynote speaking on whether it's on managing the millennials or millennials at work, uh, I do a Q&A afterwards. And Q&A usually will drive my next subject matter. So I started getting a lot of questions like, what if you're a millennial and you manage people older than you? What do you do? And so because that got a little more frequent, and so I thought, yeah, maybe the time's right to start looking at this uh, issue and see how I can help. Do you think millennials have a hard time perceiving of um, the ideas of leadership and, and responsibility around leadership, or is their concept of it uh, just so alien to people that aren't millennials that they have a hard time communicating their vision? I think, first of all, leadership, um, they've grown up in an era where we've really emphasized leadership, uh, even over management. And so, as a matter of fact, in my first book, I wanted to call it Leading the Millennials because they don't really like to be managed. And so <laughs> leadership, leadership is a term that uh, they're endeared to in the sense that they want to be good leaders. I think they come in to it with more tools than maybe we did when we were making the transition. And by that I mean uh, they've grown up with concepts like emotional intelligence, you know, that it's been really hot, this whole idea of, of the better we know ourselves and manage ourselves, the better we can manage relationships, uh, empowerment movement, uh, the whole idea of breaking down hierarchy in organizations and going to flatter organizations and lowering power distance. All those are pretty much concepts 
they come in to the workplace understanding. Whereas for other generation, you know, it's taken consultants and books and a lot of convincing uh, to get us to kind of move the needle when it comes to some leadership issues. So I think on one side, they're naturals at it. And I think in the book, uh, in, in what we show is that they do have a lot of natural ability. Because on the scale that I was telling you uh, that we did on the Google metrics, um, which was called the Oxygen Project, by the way, if anybody wants to look it up. It's pretty fascinating. But what we did is we looked at it. We saw that millennials who manage that are you know, between 20, 24 and 35 scored highest in almost every category of all the other age managers. And so when we looked at that, we thought, man, what's going on here? And one of the explanations we believe is that they just get some of these concepts coming in. Do you think um, if you have an organization that um, is getting millennials on board, you should kind of make a new set of rules for them? And, and I'm not saying like completely different rules, but basically these guys are going to be more entrepreneurial. They're going to be more self-motivated. Kind of tell them a, a, a goal. We want to kind of be over here, guys. Figure out how to get there and, and report back to me every now and again instead of micromanaging. Yeah, and that's that's really important. One thing I want to clarify for millennials is they really like high direction and they like for things to be spelled out, um, but they don't want somebody looking over their shoulder checking in every other hour or every other day. So some managers get it wrong. They go, I don't want to micromanage, and therefore they don't really give clear direction. One way to freak a millennial out is to be ambiguous about something. <laughs> and it, seriously, if you want them to just go crazy, just be ambiguous because they believe they're being set up for failure. So I think on one side for them is they want clear direction because they want to achieve, they want to be a success. And on the other hand, they want that freedom to kind of pursue within boundaries uh, those goals or, or tasks that you've established for them. You know, how, how do you get a millennial to trust you. And, I, and it kind of sounds like we're talking about managing millennials, but really, if you are a CEO and you have millennials that you have in your organization that have people underneath them and their responsibility is to make stuff happen, how do you get that millennial manager to trust you and uh, work with you? Do you have, are they more open to um, conversations that are, that are blunt or are they more open to conversations that are teamwork driven? Well, they're open to conversations that are teamwork driven. But one thing to clarify, Bob, they one of the things that concerns me about the transition for millennials into management, they two things happen, and they both have to do with the relational dynamics in the workplace. When they get promoted, um, all of a sudden, the relationships change with their peers. And it's a very lonely time for them because their peers look at them like, no, you're the boss now. We can't hang out anymore. Uh, we we interviewed a, a a young woman, and her best friend from high school unfriended her uh, on Facebook. Ouch! <laughs> they worked at the same company, right? And she got promoted. The other one didn't. She unfriended. She said, "I don't want you snooping in on my life," and that's a really painful thing sometimes for a millennial. So on one side, that's going to impact. You know, how do I hold them accountable? And, and to some degree, millennials are tougher on millennials than they they are on other workers which is fascinating because they'll go after them. The second relationship that changes is the relationship with the boss or the person that cre uh, promoted them. And what happens is millennials just fear the day they're going to disappoint that person. 
or disagree with them. So they manage with this tension uh, of, of on one shoulder they've got their own perception and on the other shoulder they've got their, their boss. And so they, you know, they, they struggle with really what to do sometimes because they don't want to disappoint the boss. So working with that population in companies trying to bring up young leaders, the number one thing is you got to allow room for disagreement. And you got to say to that young leader, you're going to make a mistake or you're going to disappoint me, but that's not going to be the end of my belief in you or where you're going in this organization. It just means we'll have a disagreement. Because although any relation, and what I write in the book is it's not the people that are against us or don't like us that hold us back in life. It's the people that love us the most. Because any time that you grow or you advance or you take on or you become more confident, it's a threat to current relationships. And sometimes that happens with your boss. All of a sudden, you start to get some recognition, notoriety, you get your feet under you, you have confidence. And all of a sudden, you might hear stuff like, hey, you're getting too big for your britches or you, you, know, you think you know more than you really do. Those are all you know, meant sometimes to pull us back into that previous place. And so working with these young leaders, what I try to say is, you know, don't be hubris, don't, don't be arrogant, but you got to find your own voice because if you don't, you're going to uh, come across as inauthentic, uh, certainly with your peers, the older people that work for you, and then ultimately with your boss. Do you think uh, that labeling uh, demographics are, are changing the way people are perceived because, you know, Back in the '60s, when you went into to a job, you weren't you weren't kind of tagged as like, oh, you were born in this period, so you're kind of like generation, you know, whatever. N, um, or has that always uh, existed? Well, in the in the modern workplace, it's existed. Um, there's always been this sense of looking down at the next generation coming in. Matter of fact, there was a great pra- uh, paper written in 1965 by Norman Ryder out of the University of Nebraska, and he said this, he said, he, what he called this is demographic metabolism. Hmm. Anytime that you have an older generation moving out and a younger generation moving in, you have the potential for conflict and, and really problems because uh, of societal change. And you'll have different attitudes and values between generations. So yeah, it's, it's always been going on as long as there's social change. Now, if everybody grew up on the Amazon in a tribe and you don't see change in society over years, you're not going to have generations. And that's the, con- the it's a sociological construct. So, yes, there's always been that sense of one generation looks at the next one and, and, and kind of puts them down. What makes it so significant today is because you have the, the two largest generations that have ever walked the face of the earth. One is the baby boomer, the other is a millennial, and they're vying for control of the workplace. And, and, you know, in group norm theory, the dominant, the large group gets to set the agenda for everybody else. And when somebody doesn't act that way, then they get punished or sanctioned. And so what's happened is because millennials are the larger generation, they're moving the needle on a lot of things that Gen X, even though maybe they would have wanted to change, couldn't change. And I'll give you an example. So the builder or the silence, whatever you want to call them, the ones born between, you know, 1925 and... 1946. They, uh, in the workplace, when, when people came to work and baby boomers came to work, they said, leave your problems at home. Don't bring them to work with you. Baby boomers said, well, we have problems. 
And so they created things like employee assistance programs, HR, uh, psychology hotlines for their workers. And so they moved the needle on making the workplace more human friendly. And then, of course, Gen X comes along. There are things they wanted to do, but the baby boomers were such a large group, they just kind of smacked them down. So I guess the great achievement of Gen X in the workplace as far would be probably casual Friday. <laughs> and now you have millennials, right? So now you have millennials coming in. And, and they're really wanting to move it on like, look, I want flexible work hours. I want to come and go as I please. So each generation has moved the needle. So you've always had that. But I think right now the reason we're talking so much about it is because of the size of, of, of the baby boomers and millennial generation. And then ultimately, too, Bob, I think you're going to see more tension between Gen X and millennials simply because millennials will be promoted to equal positions or even over Gen X with 15 years less experience. Do you think because uh, millennials are more social creatures because they've kind of lived in um, the, the you know the social environment of Facebook and, and and Twitter and all those type of thing are more motivated or worried about uh, what their peers say and how they're perceived uh, in platforms outside of work? Yeah, I, I believe so. I, I mean, you, you look on Facebook or people will pull off postings if they don't get 100 likes. I mean, I couldn't imagine evaluating myself by how many people like my page. But th there's so many other metrics that they look at relationships with. And that's another thing too, Bob, is millennials realize they communicate differently than X and baby boomers. They know that about themselves. Uh, they're frustrated that they miscommunicate with older workers or they're misunderstood. or it, But they get that part of that is their responsibility because they just communicate differently. And take, for instance, you know, uh, texting. And rather than picking up the phone, a baby boomer wants to call somebody. And you'll never see a millennial pick up the phone, hardly ever. And so just even styles of communication are different or a preferred mode of communication uh, that makes – it, it difficult for them to communicate and relate to some level. I tell you where they really do score high from people that are managed by them, particularly people older than them, is that they're approachable, they're open-minded, uh, their energy and their enthusiasm, their understanding of technology, and they're very helpful. And they're understanding when people come to them with issues or problems. The, the one area that I did see where millennials struggle with managing older people is sometimes I think older people kind of play them a bit uh, because millennials <laughs> don't want to fail. They'll overfunction. You know, they're not going to fail. And so a lot of older people get that about them and kind of rope de dope it and say, well, I don't understand this technology or this process. And so they'll get the millennial to overfunction on their behalf. <laughs> hey, but isn't that what great management's all about? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so how should people approach this book? Is it a time book once you've, you know, you can jump around in, you can just, you know what, chapter two seems to be good for me and just read that, or should they kind of read from beginning to end to get the best value? No, you, you actually, you could jump around in it. And it, the one thing about it, Bob, it's just like it, it, my first book, Ma Managing the Millennials, people after they'd read it go, hey, this, this book is, is just good management. And, and so I said, yeah, absolutely. It's just good management. It's just exponentially important when you're managing millennials. And I feel this book as well, this book could help any leader uh, because it, it really does cover some important concepts about leadership. 
and like one is self-differentiation, not to take things seriously and, and not to beat yourself up. You know, I'll give you an example. A lot of people know Maslow and his theory of hierarchy of need, but a lot of people don't know about his theory of rising expectation. And he says that your organization, whether it's good or bad, isn't dependent upon whether people are complaining or not complaining. There are a lot of leaders that think, well, if nobody's complaining, everything's going well. Uh, and that's just not true. What, what Maslow said is you need to listen to the quality of discontent. If it's lower order discontent, you know, the bathrooms aren't clean, the lighting's bad, my paycheck is always three weeks late, those, those are what we call lower order needs and you've got a real problem as an organization. But as people start moving that conversation up that pyramid to self-actualization, yeah, as a leader, I have to look at that and go, man, we have, you know, we've come a long way and not get down on yourself just because some complaining. And if you think about that, when you, when you lead, it doesn't say we don't want to listen to people that are disgruntled. It's just that listening to the quality of the discontent to determine how good your leadership is. And that's a concept that anybody, you know, could, could really benefit from. Hmm. So the book really is for, you could jump around in it. It's, it's written for millennials to get to the next level. I think, they'll, I think they'll absolutely love it and thrive after they read it. But I think it would be a good read for anybody also that's doing leadership talent, pipeline development for their organizations. How does a millennial approach growing within an organization? And, and when I say growing, as in uh, how do they move up in the organization, gain the respect from the different generations, uh, be able to translate and show that they are great managers? Well, I think number one, in most, most millennials go into organizations really wanting to be problem solvers. Uh, they look for what's wrong, not what's right. And so by nature, they start really, uh, if I can put it this way, with one foot in quicksand uh, with older managers simply because they're, they're critiquing what, what's currently going on. So what I would say to a millennial is master their way or the process before you suggest a new one. Um, another thing is, you know, they're perceived as being entitled. And that's probably the number one perception of millennials. And it frustrates them, and I, I get why it does. But, you know, to some degree, it's, it's across the board, and, and most everybody will report that in their research or how they experience millennials. Whether it's reality, it's a perception. And the best way, and when I say to millennials, to overcome that perception, simple. Show appreciation and gratitude. You know, when somebody invites you to lunch or to a meeting and you go, when you get back, point out what you learned and what you appreciate about it. Send a thank you note, a card, an email, a text. But just acknowledge when somebody does something nice for you. And it's not that millennials are, in one of the perceptions in, in my first book was that they're self-absorbed. It's not so much that. It's just they've grown up in a world where adults have kind of catered to them and wanted to help them. And so they just kind of expect it when somebody reaches out and does something nice for them and they don't acknowledge it. And a, a great example of this is a, a client of mine, young guy, entrepreneur, company's about five years old. I think they went from like, you know, 500K to, you know, 12 million now annually. But what he does, he hires mostly millennials and he provides lunch every day for them in the office. They order in, and I'm talking about a team of about 40 to 50 people. 
I mean, it's, it's quite an expense. And one day he put some Girl Scout cookies out on the counter with a sign that said Girl Scout cookies, $5. And, and the boxes were in there. And his, his attorney that would come in and walk through and he saw it, older guy, baby boomer, and, and uh, he sees it. So he puts his money in and he gets a box of cookies. About three or four days later, he comes back through and he sees the baskets full. So he goes into the CEO and he says, hey, did, you know, did you sell all the cookies? And he says, no. And so then the attorney goes, I can't believe this. You, you give these people lunch every day of the week and none of them have bought a box of cookies because your, daughter, you know, your daughter's Girl Scout cookies. And the CEO says, yeah, I'm, I'm hurt by that. And so the attorney goes out, you know, kind of gets on all of them and says, what's the matter with you people? How come you didn't buy the cookies? And one by one, they're like going, well, I don't carry cash, dude. You know, can I use Apple Pay? And, <laughs> but it's that, that idea of not connecting the dots to say, this is what this person is doing for me. And maybe I should stop at the ATM, get a $5, $20, and buy a couple of boxes of cookies. Those are the little things I think that can get you noticed in an organization. Another thing is learn how to initiate relationships with authority figures. Millennials are the first generation who is not needing an authority figure to access information. They don't have a felt need to build relationships with authority figures. Matter of fact, an authority figure may be the last place they go for an answer. And so they haven't created those skills to, to to build relationships. And so one thing I would say is that take every opportunity you can to initiate the relationship. Don't wait for somebody to initiate it with you. Go out of your way, take an interest in people around you and older people, their careers, because really what happens is the people that we can communicate, and I, I say this in the millennial population, the ones that communicate upward they're the ones that get promoted fastest. And the reason is, is because we will promote people we can communicate with because we feel like we can trust them. If we don't feel like we can communicate with them, we're not going to promote them. And unfortunately, there are a lot of gifted, talented millennials out there that struggle with having conversations with people older than them. And if they could overcome that, there's a lot they have to offer. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's almost like they have this uh, over-efficient life where they can communicate with their peer groups, the, the, the people that they hang out with all the time or, or when they run into somebody new that is a millennial. They have their own codes and stuff, and it's text, 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 and it, it's very veneer thin, their communication. And it's very rare that they really dig down and, and, and have these meaningful relationships in our perception of what a meaningful relationship is. They have a meaningful relationship. We just can't perceive of how something that vague, uh, based on text and, and, and weird, quippy comments um, can, can actually be uh, useful as a communication tool. They're just hardware different than us. And, and I think that's the biggest challenge for a millennial that's in management is the ability to communicate in different ways. And, and one of the things I, I discover or try to reach out to people is like, how do you like to communicate? Do you prefer text? Do you prefer phone calls? Do you like emails? Which one do you like? And I will communicate with you on whatever you're most comfortable with, nine times out of ten, people will like be shocked that I've given them a choice. Yeah, and and that is great advice. Uh, in my second book, Millennials at Work, it's about the challenges that millennials reported facing going into the workforce, and that's the advice I give them. I said, you know, look at your manager 
And do they use the phone? Do they text? <laughs> Matter of fact, I say it this way. If they call you, call them back. If they text you, text them back. If they email you, email them back. If they fax you, leave the company. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's great. Let's say we're millennials. We've been managing for a bit, maybe you know, two, three years. We're, we're, we're starting to, to see some advancement. How do we stimulate that advancement? How do we tell people above us and, and other people that aren't millennials that, yes, I'm ready to move forward. I want higher challenges. I, I think that, like I said, when, when you were, here's one of the knocks on millennial managers from people older than them that they're managing. And it's that sometimes they get so preoccupied with that next level, that next step, that they don't, they don't do a great job at their current level. So, so number one is get agreement between you and your boss and your manager about your current performance before you start initiating this discussion about your next uh, promotion. So, you know, like I said, master where you are currently. And then I think what you can do is to say, you know, I want to, I want to avail myself for professional development. You know, uh, join young, you know, young professional groups or training or get certified on some tool, but initiate that conversation with your boss to say, you know, I, I want, I would want to expand my tool chest, so to speak, as a leader. Uh, or many organizations now have leadership schools or camps and find out ways that you can get an invitation to go to those. And, and, and that's the thing that I'll say about millennials. They, this is where they thrive and excel is, is they will make that investment of their time we may try to, you know, talk, you know, Xers and baby boomers into going to, you know, to, to a seminar and they'll go, you know, grudgingly, but millennials go just really with enthusiasm and desire to learn and, and to get better at what they're doing. So, you know, number one, master where you are currently and make sure you have agreement with your boss about what your performance is and then look for those opportunities for professional de development. Maybe take on uh, projects or, you know, uh, ask for more responsibility. The one, the, the thing about today that we're seeing in organizations is that it's what we call feedback seeking behavior, that it's okay now for subordinates to kind of initiate conversations with uh, authority figures and to say, look, I think I'm ready for that next level. The key that I say, Bob, is be prepared for when that person tells you you're not ready. And, and probably the best thing that you can do as far as a millennial, I think the number one challenge for them getting to the next level is their lack of patience. <laughs> yeah. and, and so, in a, in patience, in it, practicing patience really is about trying to understand why you're having to wait. Work on that. Learn about that. Investigate that. Uh, look at what what you're contributing, what the system is, and don't imp oversimplify by saying they just don't want to promote me or they don't listen to me, but really try to learn from that time in between. And I've talked to a lot of millennials that almost lost the, the dream job. They almost quit a week before they were promoted or before they were invited simply because they had waited a year and felt like that was too long. So I think in some situations, or every situation, I think it, a lack of patience is the thing that they most need to work on to get to that next level. And I like to call it, you have to go slow to go fast. 
Well, it's also too that you know they they should have the the ability to go up to the person that will be hiring, uh, promoting them, and say, hey, you know, I'm getting a little patient here. I know maybe I shouldn't be. What can I do to help you get me into that higher position? Or is that just being you know too open with the manager because he might say, well, we're not considering you for the the position. Well, as long as you're willing to hear that, right? I think that that's, that's what, one of the tough things I think millennials are perceived to be defensive. So anytime you give them feedback that they don't like, it gets kind of flipped back on you. <laughs> like, well, it was your fault. You didn't develop me. You didn't give me the resources and the tools or you weren't clear in your direction. So what happens is a lot of managers and leaders just stop giving feedback because they don't want to have to deal with a blowback. So the thing for millennials that I try to work with is to say, Look, if, if you're going to initiate this feedback and you want it, you, ha- you cannot be defensive about it. You've got to listen to it. You can disagree with it, but you, you've got to sit with it. You know, one of, the, one of the knocks on millennials is millennial managers is that they're immature. And it, the fact of the matter, I think it's more of a psychological construct than anything, and it's called selective attention. You know, whenever a millennial, you know, rides their bike through the office, it's looked like immaturity. You know, when baby boomer Bob rides his boss bike through the office, everybody cheers. <laughs> and so they, they deal still with a lot of selective attention to say, oh, uh, they point out negative behaviors in millennials simply because they're young. And, and, and I know it's frustrating, but you can't react to that. That's some of that stuff that, like I said in the book where I talk about, you got to self-differentiate and you can't, you have to know where you end and other people begin and you can't be your role. You have to separate from that. Your person and your role are two different things. And so those are, those are little things that will help them in that process. You know, that's very interesting. You know, the role or your career becomes you. Um, I think every generation faces that and, and like, I want to be this because it's a hero figure or I want to be this because it's a helping figure. And when they're younger, that's why, you know, people want to be firemen and nurses and, and help their friends. But when they get into the real world where uh, things are a little bit different, uh, a lot of times that gets shattered and it, they can't recover from it. How does a, a, a millennial keep their dream alive um, because if they don't, then they're going to end up in a position or job that they really don't respect or like. The first thing is I don't think they struggle too much with being willing to make that move into the job that they want or they desire. Um, I think for organizations, and what I always teach them is that the love language of millennials is career development. And so if you don't have a plan for them and you can't articulate where they're going, you're going to lose them simply because they're going to go somewhere where someone is thinking about their future and developing them. They'll take less money in a job to know that they're on a career path. And so I think for the millennial, my advice on keeping their dream alive, I, I think they're better at it already than anything I could tell them to do. <laughs> the, 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 one, the one thing that I would say to them, again, is to, to practice patience in, in that, that desire and those goals that you set. And I, I understand that they've moved at a pace in life that, that was pretty much at their own choosing and liking. Some finished their first year of college while they're still in high school. 
Um, they can order something, get it tomorrow from Amazon, or you can play a video game and master it in 76 hours. So this notion of being able to move at the pace that you want to, um, I think all of a sudden you get to work and it's not up to you. And I, I think managing and dealing with that, the time frames of what it takes is an important step. So keep that passion alive. Keep wanting to move forward, but self-monitor your behavior and how you're acting because if, if, you, if, you, if you're impatient and you're always pushy, you know, obviously people are going to push back and you're not going to get those opportunities. Do you think um, with, the, with the general shift in, in awareness that women are becoming a critical part of the, uh, the business community, uh, that uh, millennials that are women are going to have a much different career trajectory compared to what um, happened 20, 30 years ago? Absolutely. And there are a few things that, it, in play here, and I'm glad you asked this question. I just did an interview with Women's Diversity Magazine. Uh, number one, millennial men are very different than baby boomer men and Gen X to some degree. Gen X, not, I mean, are, they're closer. Millennial men, working for a woman... They highly respect them and don't see them as different as far as a boss or a manager from that, like previous generations. Um, and I'm not saying all baby boomers didn't want to work for a woman, but you know, I think you know what I'm talking about. Sure, yeah. I, th I think when it comes to equal pay, that's a non-issue with millennials, and that will shift. That will change. That, that won't even be an issue moving forward. If it is, I'd be very disappointed in this generation. Because I believe they'll move the needle on that as well. Another thing I think sociologically that we're going to have to come to grips with as far as just the future, 60% of our universities are women. And they have been for quite some time. So just the education and the more education, I, I think it's awesome for women. I don't know if you saw this morning on CNN, but there's this big thing about uh, – uh, Gloria uh, Allred, who made a comment, it was kind of a dig against young millennial women. It was perceived that way, and I know she didn't mean it that way. But there's, there is tension, Bob, in, in older generations with younger generations in these, like even the NAACP, uh, the women's movement. Y you see that tension to say, look, the way we got here and what we got in life, uh, you know, we want you to, to appreciate that and do the same things. But the younger women particularly, they're saying, well, we appreciate what you've done for us, how far you've taken us, but that's not how we're getting to the future. And I think that's one of the huge things you're going to see really systemically within a lot of organizations. You know, that that is fascinating because really women have been at war and, and quite literally for, you know, 80, 90 years and have really had to struggle uh, and, and, you know, the leaders have, have suffered uh, a lot and now they've kind of like you say brought the needle to this point and now it's kind of been like oh here you go all wrapped up in a nice bow we just needed to push it to the next and they're not what well, goes back you just don't appreciate what we've done for you right yeah and they've but they've got to also look at it it's like well maybe that tactic of being at war and pushing forward and being aggressive 
isn't appropriate anymore, and you have to let let the next generation deal with it the way that they they have to have ownership. If you never give them ownership, they'll never have pride of ownership. They will never push things forward, and they won't evolve it to the level that it has to be evolved to. So that, I think, is a fundamental way of of not only working with with, uh, millennials, but with anybody in an organization. As they come up, you got to give them opportunity to fail. When they do fail, pick them back up, dust them off, and go for it again. Yeah, ex- excellent advice. And, you know, the fact of the matter is I think that our organizations need to bring millennials in and give them a voice early on. It doesn't mean they're going to run things or they're going to – they get to have the final say. But I, I do a lot of work with professional uh, associations. And I show up and you look around the room and, you know, they're all over 50 white guys. And they're saying, how do we get younger? And I said, well, you got to invite younger people in and have a discussion with them. Um, I'm going to be doing, a, I'll give you an example of one such, you know, it's, it's the Rotaries, the Rotarians. I mean, a great movement, but they're struggling to get a younger membership. So on one side, you know, it, you can want younger people, but if you don't invite them into the conversation and let them shape and form, just like you were talking about, uh, you're not going to attract them. I, I mean, the difference between, if you look at country clubs, professional associations, baby boomers put them on the map um, because they were a huge generation, but they love to belong to things. Belonging is what they were about, joining stuff. It gave them identity. Well, Gen X, they could care less about that. And millennials are finding identity uh, in, in joining in different ways, not just through memberships. And so I think a lot of those legacy organizations are, are really going to be in trouble moving forward unless they can shift their models and, and get a younger voice. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know, many, many of these mature and older organizations, they've been kind of coasting. You know, that they've been doing their due diligence and yes, we're efficient, blah, blah, blah. But the reason that they're they're having attrition isn't because people are leaving the organizations. People are dying. That's how old their organizations are. It's like the reason that you've got 10,000 people less in the organization isn't because you're doing it wrong. Those people that are in the organization are still happy. But people are passing away. People aren't there anymore. And it's not like you hand off your Rotary membership to the family and say, there you go, now you can become a member. It doesn't work that way. So, yeah, I think uh, organizations that are more mature, the banking systems, um, any anything that's kind of running on that level, they have a huge challenge because if they don't bring the millennials on board, they don't uh, facilitate for them and and shift their organization subtly so that they can evolve and and do well, then the millennials will reinvent that industry and they'll just take you out at the knees. Yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> so what about companies that are uh, starting now? There, there's, a, there's a couple out there, super successful, run by a millennial, and he will only hire millennials. Do you think we're entering the age of a new form of prejudice? I don't know if it's a new age. I'll give you an example. Uh, I was doing an interview with Fox News, and they were saying, well, if you could hire somebody with 25 years experience versus someone out of college, who would you hire? And so I said, okay, at face value, you, you know, you would say the person with 25 years experience at the same price. But if your goal or your objective is to build your bench for the future, then I would hire someone younger if I had a strong management team. 
And I would say the same thing to that uh, millennial CEO that hires only millennials is to say, you need to do an assessment of your organization. You might have some holes in here. And I'll tell you, Bob, one of my biggest concerns and why I started kind of writing on this in the first place, I think the greatest transfer of knowledge in the history of the world is going to take place over the next 10 years. As you have this one huge baby boomer generation moving out and the millennials moving in, companies who don't pay attention or young executives who don't look at that 40-year career and see value there where knowledge that can be transferred to a current team is really going to, they're going to miss out. Um, and so I, 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 I'm not so sure that we're getting into this new class of saying I only hire this or that. I have not seen that. I don't think organizations are intentional enough about this knowledge transfer. Uh, I'm working with a company now, which I think it's a great idea. They're starting to look at taking their C-level people, or the CEO-level people, and move them off the front line to work in their leadership development programs before they retire. Because normally what happens, this person works a whole career, they're on the front line, and then they get their golden watch and they're gone. And so they don't spend that time with those younger, maybe middle management, senior level management to move them up. So I, I think companies are gonna have to start getting a little more intentional about this knowledge transfer uh, idea. Now on the other hand of this, you know, the young CEO hires only millennials, uh, I get it, for, particularly in technology and some of those things, but I still think there's, there's room to say what does my team need to be open to assessment. And I think that most millennials, if, if you explain to them, CEOs or whatever, to say, look, this whole idea of just you know, younger people, I would re-examine that. There's so much to learn from other generations. I think what you're talking about, Sue, is... is in your organization, you should have a mentorship program where, where if you do have senior people, they're not spending 100% of their time doing their job. They're taking 20% of that time, and they, they have to, as in if you don't, we might not be hiring you in the future, uh, work with younger people in the organization to, to really bond with them. So when it goes into a transitional period of them finally leaving the company, they have two or three or five people that they can go to and say, look, I think you're perfect for this position. We're a good fit. Um, you seem to get what I get. You understand my vision. Um, let's spend the next two years transitioning you into, into this uh, much more senior position. Yeah, absolutely. I've got I've got a great friend that uh, worked for ING. He was, um, I think he was, he might not have been CEO. He's very high up. And before he retired, they created this position. And he works with about 35 uh, high potential leaders. And he's there to develop them, help them. I mean, every, it's the coolest thing. I mean, every, everything from like family life and, you know, and those kinds of things, he's there to give advice about anything that they need. And I think organizations that you know, are paying attention to that are going to have a competitive advantage, no doubt. We've been talking about the book, Millennials Who Manage, How to Overcome Workplace Perceptions and Become a Great Leader. And I think even if you're not a millennial, this is good reading. In fact, all your books, Chip, are, are kind of like, you got to be reading this stuff like right now or you're going to be in trouble. Thanks for coming on the show, Chip. Thanks, Bob, for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. 
Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week. Oh,